This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. In this month's series, Love Triangles, I'll share true crime cases that resulted from love that turned deadly. In this episode, we'll look at a case of fatal attraction. Sheila Davalu made it a habit of looking outside her relationships for passion and sex. But she soon turned cold towards even her secret lovers once these relationships became routine. That is, until she met a man who rejected her for a new love interest. That's when her attraction for him turned into obsession. In the end, two people would become victims of her jealous rage. This is the last chapter in the series, Love Triangles, Sheila Davalu's Fatal Attraction. Love is arguably the strongest energy force in the universe. Why do I say this? What else can cause a person to be deliriously happy or alternately fall into a pit of despair, solely dependent on the attention and affection of one person? What other emotion can motivate someone to be the very best versions of themselves or the very worst? Love always begins with a spark of attraction. You meet someone, and there's just something about them that draws your interest like none other. Perhaps it's physical, you find them particularly beautiful or handsome. Or it's their personality or energy that captivates you, their zest for life, sunny disposition, or intense drive. Maybe it's their heart, their soul, that moves you. For example, the fact that they're kind to animals or have a generous and giving nature. Whatever causes that first spark of attraction, it can blossom into love with the right timing and proper conditions. But my question to you is this, when does that attraction turn into obsession? For most of us, the first blush of love can often feel a bit obsessive. We think about our love interests constantly, can't wait to be with them again, fantasize about the future we might share, etc. This high created by feelings of new love can be quite intoxicating, and we feel like our desire for this connection will never end but it's rare for the flames of love to burn that intensely for very long. Over time, new love can cool a bit and settle into a deep, comfortable, familiar feeling with your date, which may not be as passionate, but can withstand the test of time. For Sheila Davalu, the intensity of new attraction was a feeling she craved and the only thing that seemed to satisfy her. As soon as the passion waned in her relationships, she began seeking a more intense connection with someone new, hoping to capture that spark once more. But when she encountered a love interest who always seemed to be just out of her reach, her attraction turned into obsession. Her obsession would lead to a shocking conclusion, but one which traced its roots back to when Sheila Davalu was just out of her teens. Sheila Davalu was born in Iran in 1969. 
Her family immigrated to the U.S. to escape the Iranian Revolution when she was just a little girl. They settled in Yorktown Heights, New York. Sheila was a very bright girl and did well in school. She aspired towards a degree in science. But while just out of high school, Sheila's family and cultural traditions steered her towards a quick engagement and early marriage soon after she graduated from high school. Before she was 20 years old, Sheila was married to an Iranian man named Farid Mousavi. Even so, she continued to pursue the dream of a college education. She enrolled at the University of Stony Brook, where she earned a degree in biochemistry. Sheila continued on to higher education, attending graduate school at New York Medical College. At New York Med, Sheila became romantically involved with another student named Paul Christos. Although still married, she carried on the affair until her husband, Farid, learned of her infidelity. He divorced her in the year 2000. Sheila and Paul married the same year. The newlyweds soon moved to Pleasantville, New York, a quiet suburb in Westchester County. Paul began working at Cornell University's New York City campus, while Sheila started her career as a research scientist at Purdue Pharma in Stamford, Connecticut. By all accounts, Sheila Davalu should have been happy. She was accomplished in her field, had landed a great job, and had married the man she'd fallen in love with and left her first husband for. But Sheila grew bored. Life became routine, and the spark she once felt for her husband Paul had fizzled. She later said that she and Paul were, quote, living more like roommates than husband and wife. Just a year into her new marriage, Sheila found a new flame to light her fire. In the summer of 2001, she met a co-worker named Nelson Sessler at an after-work get-together. Nelson was partial to olive-skinned women with long, dark hair. And not only did this describe Sheila, but she was also bright, interesting, fun, and vivacious. The pair hit it off, and before long, they began a sexual relationship. But Nelson had no idea that Sheila Davalu was married. She told him she was separated and was divorcing, and he had no reason not to believe her. Sheila must have liked to have the home court advantage, because she soon began inviting Sessler to her home for romantic dinners and even overnight visits. I know what you're thinking. What kind of kinky shenanigans are going on here? Did she have the consent of her husband? Was he <clears throat> also involved in these dates? But no. Sheila was a master of deception and devised a way to get her husband to bug out whenever she wanted to spend time alone with her lover. Sheila would tell Paul that her brother Shahim, who had mental health issues, was coming to visit and would become agitated should he learn that she was now married to another man. She asked him to leave the house while her brother was in town and even got Paul to help her remove any traces of himself from the home. Together, Sheila and Paul packed up all his clothes, toiletries, and photos. Paul then left to spend the night with his parents or at a friend's house while Sheila carried out her secret affair. Nelson Sessler remained in the dark as to Sheila's marital status as there was no evidence of her husband and Sheila appeared to live alone. According to Nelson Sessler, the relationship was one of friendship and casual sex. He didn't consider his relationship with Sheila serious and didn't believe Sheila did either. Nelson was also dating another woman at the same time, a co-worker at Purdue 
named Annalisa Raimundo. Annalisa Raimundo was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1970. She came from a close-knit family, and she and her sister Bernadette were best friends. Annalisa was a beautiful woman with long dark hair that hung in curls, ebony eyes that sparkled when she smiled, which was often, and a trim athletic figure. Anna had been an athlete as well as a top scholar. She graduated from Harvard University and continued on to earn her master's degree at another Ivy League school, Columbia University. By the age of 32, Anna had worked her way up the ladder to become an executive at Purdue Pharma and was well-liked by management and her co-workers alike. Annalisa Raimundo and Nelson Sessler began dating in 2001. Anna's sister Bernadette told Dateline that Annalisa adored Nelson. However, Nelson at first kept his relationship with Anna casual. The saying, opposites attract, describes this couple. Anna was outgoing, lively, and loved socializing, while Nelson was quieter and subdued. Still, they shared a strong attraction and began spending more time together in the fall and winter of 2001. Now, I've heard it said that a wedding can sometimes turn one's fancy towards love. Personally, I've never experienced this. But whatever. If I've said it once on this podcast, I've said it multiple times. I'm dead inside. But that's just me. For Nelson and Annalisa, attending a wedding seemed to move their relationship to the next level. Annalisa served as a bridesmaid at her sister Bernadette's wedding, and Nelson attended as her date. Anna caught the bouquet, and Nelson made a genuine attempt to catch the garter. Maybe it was the romance of the day that brought them closer together. Or maybe how beautiful and happy Anna looked that day made Nelson's heart grow fonder. Whatever the reason, just a few months later, Nelson and Annalisa entered into a more committed relationship with Nelson frequently staying at Anna's apartment overnight. When he began growing closer to Anna, Nelson broke things off with Sheila Davalu. She appeared to take it in stride, even calling their relationship nothing more than a summer fling. But the reality was that Sheila Davalu couldn't let Nelson Sessler go. She began monitoring his and Annalise's relationship. She talked about him constantly, according to her friends and co-workers. She was so obsessed with her former lover that she even spoke about him to her husband. However, Sheila made up a fake love triangle scenario at work and continually updated Paul on this fictional soap opera she said was playing out between three of her co-workers, Jack, Annalisa, and Melissa. Sheila said Melissa was crushing on a guy named Jack, who was in a relationship with another woman named Annalisa. In reality, Jack was Nelson and Melissa was Sheila herself. Annalisa, of course, was Nelson's real-life girlfriend, Annalisa Raimundo. Sheila had begun following Nelson and Annalisa and had even hacked into Nelson's voicemail at work to determine where he'd be at any given time. Once upon learning that Nelson was taking a trip to Las Vegas, she booked a seat on the same flight and, coincidentally, ended up in the seat right next to his. Sheila told her husband she was helping her friend Melissa spy on her cheating boyfriend, Jack. Even borrowed a pair of night vision binoculars from Paul that she said Melissa had requested. 
The truth was that Sheila Davalu was stalking Nelson Sessler and Annalisa Raimundo. Her obsession would come to a deadly end on November 8, 2002. Nelson Sessler left Annalisa Raimundo's Stamford, Connecticut apartment on the morning of November 8, 2002. He'd spent the night there and left for his office early. He had plans to work late into the evening. Anna had made plans to meet up with a group of friends around 6 p.m. that night for drinks and dinner. When Anna hadn't arrived by 7.30, her friend Christine began calling her to see where she was. She received no answer after multiple attempts. Annalisa never arrived for the planned night out. Christine thought of stopping by her friend's apartment on the way home, but decided against it. Rewind to about noon that same day. A 911 call came into the Stamford police. An unidentified woman was on the phone and told dispatchers that she believed her neighbor was being attacked in her apartment. She gave a description of a man she said she'd observed entering the apartment. When asked by the dispatcher, the woman said she didn't know her neighbor's name and gave the address of 123 Harborview Drive. The dispatcher knew that Harborview Drive was an industrial area and there were no apartment buildings at that address. After the caller hung up, the dispatcher called the number back and discovered that the call had been made from a payphone at the Duchess Restaurant located on Shippen Avenue in Stamford. The dispatcher spoke to the restaurant manager, but he had not observed anyone using the payphone. The dispatcher then sent officers to 123 Harbor Drive, a residential address located near the Duchess Restaurant. She also gave them the apartment number 105, the unit number the caller had mentioned. An officer arrived and knocked on the door to apartment 105, but received no answer. He entered to find the front room in complete disarray and the bloody body of Annalisa on the floor in the foyer. It appeared that a violent struggle had occurred in the small apartment living room. Furniture was knocked over, and houseplants were found in shattered pots and strewn across the floor. The body was covered in blood, and blood pooled on the floor beneath the deceased victim. However, there appeared to be no sign of forced entry or ransacking. Annalisa had put up a ferocious fight for her life. She had suffered blunt force trauma to her skull and had been brutally beaten on the face, head, and chest. In addition, she had been stabbed multiple times. The autopsy would record nine stab wounds to the neck and chest. A blood stain was discovered on the sink handle in the otherwise neat and tidy apartment bathroom and was collected as evidence. The last person known to have seen Annalisa alive, Nelson Sessler, was questioned that evening by investigators. They found his demeanor suspect. When he was told about the violent death of his girlfriend, he displayed little emotion and didn't ask for specifics. They were even more suspicious of Anna's boyfriend when he fell asleep while waiting for detectives to question him further. But Nelson's alibi checked out when security footage showed him leaving the apartment at the time he claimed. Security cameras at his office proved that he had been in the building all day. Investigators next tried to follow up on the 911 call that claimed a woman was being attacked. They canvassed all of Annalise's neighbors, but no one in the area matched the voice heard on the 911 call. 
the case went cold. Then, five months later, another bizarre crime would lead investigators to Annalisa's murder. Nelson Sessler's girlfriend, Annalisa Raimundo, was dead after being brutally attacked and stabbed in her apartment by an unknown assailant. There were no solid leads. Investigators had questioned Sessler about anyone who may have held a grudge against himself or Anna. They asked if any former lovers or enemies of his may be capable of such violence. Sessler mentioned the names of two women he'd previously dated, whom he knew had mental health issues. But Sheila Davalu never came up. Their breakup had been so amicable, and Sheila, in his mind, was such a stable and solid individual that he saw no reason to mention her to investigators. But Sheila Davalu wasted no time contacting Nelson after his girlfriend was murdered. At first, Nelson found it awkward for Sheila to be calling to offer her condolences and stopping by his place with care packages and a shoulder to lean on, so soon after Annalise's death. But just weeks after the murder, they had renewed their intimate relationship. Once again, Sheila employed the ruse that her brother was visiting to get her husband, Paul Christos, out of the house when she invited Nelson over. Paul began complaining about having to leave for these visits and told Sheila that she needed to tell her brother that she was married. However, Sheila Davalu had become obsessed with Nelson Sessler, and now that she'd gotten him back, she wouldn't give him up. To this end, she had a few options. Option one was that she could let her husband know that she was in love with someone else and ask for a divorce. Option two was that she could finally tell Nelson she was married, but was leaving her husband to be with him and apologize for deceiving him. But Sheila Davalu chose option three, to tell neither man how they'd been duped. Instead, she created a plan to eliminate her husband so she could claim Nelson as her own. On Saturday, March 22, 2003, Sheila proposed a fun game for her and her husband Paul to play. She told him that each of them would take turns being handcuffed and blindfolded while the other touched them with different objects. The blindfolded partner would then guess what each object was. Sheila didn't expressly state that the game was sexual, but it was implied. Paul agreed, and Sheila blindfolded him and placed handcuffs around his wrists. She touched his skin with various household items while he lay on the floor. Paul guessed several items correctly, and then Sheila told him she had to go into the kitchen to retrieve one last item for him to guess. When she returned, he felt Sheila sit on top of him, straddling his stomach. An item was placed on his chest. He guessed it was a candle. The item was a knife. As Paul lay helpless, blindfolded and handcuffed, Sheila lifted the knife and thrust it into his chest. Stunned, Paul didn't feel the pain at first. Sheila stabbed him again and said, Oh my God, I think I hurt you. You're bleeding. Paul asked her what had happened, still unsure as it had all happened in seconds. She said, Something fell on you, and claimed it was the candle. He told her to remove the blindfold, and she complied. That's when he saw the blood. Panicking, he asked her to remove the handcuffs, but Sheila said she couldn't find the key. Together, at his insistence, they broke the chair the cuffs had been attached to. Paul told his wife to call 911, 
and he heard her make the call. But when no ambulance arrived, he insisted she call again. She did, but still no help came. After almost an hour, Sheila finally agreed to take him to the emergency room in her car. She drove him to the Westchester Medical Center and parked her car in a back parking lot near the Behavioral Health Center, instead of driving him to the emergency room entrance. She got out of the car and came around to open the passenger side door. Paul thought she had come to help him out of the car until he saw an angry look on her face and she lifted her hand towards him. A knife was clenched in it and she lunged at him, nicking him in the chest and drawing blood once again. He was able to leap out of the car and began trying to wrestle the knife out of her hands. They struggled until he finally broke away and ran toward the hospital entrance. A medical resident and another person witnessed the struggle and saw Paul approach them, bleeding through his shirt. They called 911. Sheila arrived and said the bleeding man was her husband and that she would transport him to the emergency room. The resident refused her offer and called the police. Sheila was arrested for the attack on her husband when officers arrived. Paul Christos was in the emergency room being treated for three stab wounds administered by his wife, while officers interviewed her at the police station. Paul had been nicked in the heart and underwent emergency surgery. He survived and would give a complete account of what had transpired. Sheila insisted to investigators that her husband had been accidentally injured while they were playing a guessing game. Paul, of course, told a very different story although he could not fathom why his wife was trying to kill him. When the truth quickly unraveled, he would be as shocked as everyone who learned about Sheila Davalu's actions. If you haven't already guessed, it was Sheila Davalu who had turned up at Annalisa Raimundo's apartment four months earlier and had beaten and stabbed to death her rival for Nelson Sessler's affections. And it was she who had called 911 to report a man attacking a neighbor. Why she did this baffles me. Was there some shred of decency or feeling of guilt she possessed that didn't allow her to leave the dead woman to lay undiscovered for hours? Or was she merely trying to save Nelson from the horror of discovering the bloodied and beaten corpse upon returning to the apartment? Sheila then resumed her relationship with Nelson and weeks later devised a plan to bump off her husband. I'm also unclear on how she expected the plan to play out. Was it Sheila's intention to kill him and then claim she found him dead in their home by some unknown assailant? Or did she even plan it out that far? And why didn't she finish the job? It was clear that she intended for her husband to bleed to death. Those 911 calls she made? Well, of course, she never made them. She only pretended to make the first one Paul overheard. The second time she left the room to call 911 again and plead that they hurry, she used that time to call Nelson Sessler and invite him to dinner that night. It must have taken too long for Paul to bleed out, and maybe she lost her nerve and couldn't bring herself to stab him again. That is, until they arrived at the medical center. She knew that Paul would tell the emergency room physician that his wife had stabbed him, and she couldn't let that happen. Sheila Davalu was arrested and charged with attempted murder, assault, and criminal possession of a weapon. But this story isn't over yet. Remember, Sheila had invited Nelson for dinner at her home. When he arrived that evening, officers were processing the scene of Paul Cristo's attack 
and Sessler was informed that a domestic dispute had occurred there. Puzzled, Sessler searched news articles for information for the next couple of days. When he learned what Sheila had done, he called the police to tell them what he knew and didn't know, like that she was married, and said that they should consider Sheila Davalu as a suspect in Annalisa Raimundo's murder. He explained his past relationship with Davalu and how she had recently returned to his life after his girlfriend was killed. Investigators watched the video of Sheila Davalu's interview and compared it to the 911 call on the day of Annalisa's killing. The voices were identical. They concluded that Sheila Davalu had become obsessed with Nelson Sessler and planned and carried out the murder of his new love, Annalisa Raimundo. Sheila Davalu stood trial for the attempted murder of her husband, Paul Christos, in February 2004. She was found guilty and sentenced to 25 years in prison without the possibility of parole, the maximum penalty allowed in New York at that time. A psychiatric evaluation was conducted after Davalu argued that she had been mentally impaired on the day she stabbed her husband. The psychiatrist described her as deeply manipulative and deceptive, but well aware that her actions were criminally wrong. Investigators continued to build their case against Davalu for the murder of Annalisa Raimundo. In November 2007, she was charged with first-degree murder. Already serving her life sentence, her trial did not begin until 2012. DNA evidence was collected from the blood found in Annalisa's bathroom. Both Annalisa and Sheila Davalu's DNA was identified in the sample. There was only one explanation for that, the prosecutor stated to the jury during the trial, that it was Sheila Davalu who committed this crime. Davalu decided to act as her own attorney at the murder trial. She's so arrogant that she thinks she can do better than her own lawyer, her now ex-husband Paul Christo scoffed. Davalu claimed that her relationship with Nelson Sessler was just a summer fling. She said it was ridiculous to think she'd ever kill for him but she seemed to relish the opportunity to cross-examine him at trial. She reminded Sessler that he hid the fact that they were romantically involved when questioned by police after Raimundo's murder. She asked him why he did this, and he said he was being treated like a suspect at that time and didn't want her to undergo the same treatment. Still, Davalu did her best to paint her former lover as the real killer, telling the jury that he'd exhibited a swollen knuckle, red marks on the side of his face, and scratches on his back at the time of Annalisa's murder. He disputed her claims. On April 27, 2012, Sheila Davalu was found guilty of Annalisa's murder and sentenced to 50 additional years behind bars. She is serving her first sentence at Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for Women in New York. Upon completion of that sentence, she'll be transferred to a prison in Connecticut to begin her second sentence. Six months after she was convicted for Annalise's murder, Sheila Davalu gave an interview to the television news program Dateline. She claimed that she had been depressed, abusing prescription medications, and, quote, out of my mind when she stabbed her husband. However, she stated she had nothing to do with Annalise's murder. Paul Christos became close with Annalise's parents, who credited him for the truth about their daughter's death coming to light. While they say they're not happy for what he went through, 
they know that if he hadn't been attacked by his wife, Annalise's case would have most likely remained cold. Anna's sister Bernadette gave her daughter the name Annalise. Like the name, Bernadette says that her daughter is a close version of the original. Quote, My daughter is funny, thoughtful, and smart, just like her aunt Annalisa, Bernadette says. Annalisa's family continues to keep her memory alive, and they want people to know that she was, quote, one of the most loving people you could ever meet. Everyone she came in touch with has wonderful memories of her, end quote. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. What are your thoughts about this case? Please interact with us to share your response on the Once Upon a Crime Facebook fan page or follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and Threads. The links are in the show notes or on our webpage, truecrimepodcast.com. We'll be back next week to kick off a new series for August, Falling Stars, in which I'll detail cases of crimes involving social media stars. Make sure to subscribe or follow Once Upon a Crime on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Once Upon a Crime is written and produced by me, Esther Sanchez Ludlow. My administrative and production assistant is Lorena Garcia, who also provided the final audio mix for this episode. Emma Battaglia and I provided research for this case. Until next time, be good to one another.